Chapter 17 Christ, Our Advocate If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 the Bible abounds with governmental analogies. These are designed for our instruction. But if we receive instruction from them, it is because there is a real analogy in many points between the government of God and human governments. Roman numeral 1. What is the idea of an advocate when the term is used to express a governmental office or relation. An advocate, often one such as an attorney, is one who pleads the cause of another, who represents another, and who acts in his name, one who uses his influence in behalf of another by his request. Roman numeral two purposes for which an advocate may be employed. 1. To secure justice in case any question involving justice is to be tried. 2. To defend the accused. If one has been accused of committing a crime, an advocate may be employed to conduct his trial on his behalf, to defend him against the charge, and to prevent his conviction if possible. 3. An advocate may be employed to secure a pardon when a criminal has been justly condemned and is under sentence. That is, an advocate may be employed either to secure justice for his client or to obtain mercy for him in case he is condemned. An advocate may be employed either to prevent his conviction or, if convicted, may be employed in setting aside the execution of the law upon the criminal. Roman numeral 3. The sense in which Christ is the advocate of sinners. He is working to plead the cause of sinners, not at the bar of justice and not to defend them against the charge of sin, because the question of their guilt is already settled. The Bible represents them as condemned already, and such is the fact, as every sinner knows. Every sinner in the world knows that he has sinned, and that, consequently, he must be condemned by the law of God. This office, then, is exercised by Christ in respect to sinners, not at the bar of justice, but at the throne of grace and at the footstool of sovereign mercy. He is working not to prevent the conviction of the sinner, but to prevent his execution, not to prevent his being condemned, but being already condemned, to prevent his being damned. Roman numeral 4. What is implied in his being the advocate of sinners? 
1. His working is at a throne of grace and not at the bar of justice, to plead for sinners as sinners, and not for those who are merely charged with sin without the charge being established. This implies that the guilt of the sinner is already ascertained. The verdict of guilty has been given. The sentence of the law has been pronounced, and the sinner awaits his execution. 2. His being appointed by God as the advocate of sinners implies a merciful disposition in God. If God had not been mercifully disposed toward sinners, no advocate would have been appointed and no question of forgiveness would have been raised. 3. It implies also that the exercise of mercy on certain conditions is possible. Not only is God mercifully disposed, but to manifest this disposition in the actual pardon of sin is possible. If this had not been the case, no advocate would have been appointed. 4. It implies that there is hope, then, for the condemned. Sinners are prisoners, but in this world they are not yet prisoners of despair, but are prisoners of hope. 5. It implies that there is a governmental necessity for the intervention of an advocate, that the sinner's relations are such and his character such that he cannot be admitted to plead his own cause in his own name. He is condemned. He is no longer on trial. In this respect, he is under sentence for a capital crime. Consequently, he is an outlaw and the government cannot recognize him as being capable of performing any legal act. His relations to the government forbid that in his own name or in his own person he should appear before God. So far as his own personal influence with the government is concerned, he is a dead man. He is civilly dead. Therefore, he must appear by his friend or by his advocate, if he is heard at all. He may not appear in his own name and in his own person, but must appear by an advocate who is acceptable to the government. Roman numeral 5. I next call attention to the essential qualifications of an advocate under such circumstances. 1. He must be the uncompromising friend of the government. Notice that he appears to pray for mercy to be extended to the guilty party whom he represents. Of course, he must not himself be the enemy of the government of whom he asks so great a favor. But he should be known to be the devoted friend of the government whose mercy he desires to be extended to the guilty. 2. He must be the uncompromising friend of the dishonored law. The sinner has greatly dishonored and by his conduct denounced both the law and the lawgiver. 
By his consistent disobedience, the sinner has proclaimed in the most emphatic manner that the law is not worthy of obedience and that the lawgiver is a tyrant. The advocate must be a friend to this law. He must not sell himself to the dishonor of the law nor consent to its dishonor. He must not reflect upon the law, for in this case he places the lawgiver in a condition in which, if he should set aside the penalty and exercise mercy, he would consent to the dishonor of the law, and by a public act would himself condemn the law. The advocate seeks to dispense with the execution of the law, but he must not offer as a reason that the law is unreasonable and unjust. For in this case, he renders it impossible for the lawgiver to set aside the execution of the law without consenting to the assertion that the law is not good. In that case, the lawgiver would condemn himself instead of the sinner. It is plain, then, that he must be the uncompromising friend of the law, or he can never secure the exercise of mercy without involving the lawgiver himself in the crime of dishonoring the law. 3. The advocate must be righteous, that is, he must be clear of any complicity in the crime of the sinner. He must have no fellowship with his crime. There must be no charge or suspicion of guilt resting upon the advocate. Unless he himself is clear of the crime of which the criminal is accused, he is not the proper person to represent him before a throne of mercy. 4. He must be the compassionate friend of the sinner, not of his sins, but of the sinner himself. This distinction is very plain. Everyone knows that a parent can be greatly opposed to the wickedness of his children while having great compassion for the children themselves. He is not a true friend to the sinner who really sympathizes with his sins. I have several times heard sinners give an excuse for not being Christians that their friends were opposed to it. They have a great many close friends who are opposed to their becoming Christians and obeying God. They want them to continue in their sins. They do not want them to change and become holy, but desire them to remain in their worldly-mindedness and sinfulness. I tell such people that those friends are their friends in the same sense that the devil is their friend. Would they call the devil their good friend, their kind friend, because he sympathizes with their sins and does not want them to become Christians? Would you call someone your friend who wanted you to commit murder or robbery or tell a lie or commit any crime? Suppose he would come and appeal to you, and because you are his friend, would ask you to commit some great crime. Would you regard that person as your friend? No. No one is a true friend of a sinner unless he desires the sinner to abandon his sins. 
If any person wants you to continue in your sins, he is the adversary of your soul. Instead of being in any proper sense your friend, he is playing the devil's part to ruin you. Notice that Christ is the compassionate friend of sinners. He is a friend in the best and truest sense. He does not sympathize with your sins, but his heart is set upon saving you from your sins. I said that the Advocate must be the compassionate friend of sinners, and his compassion must be stronger than death, or he will never meet the necessities of the case. 5. Another qualification must be that he is sufficiently able to honor the law, which sinners by their transgression have dishonored. He seeks to avoid the execution of the dishonored law of God. The law, having been dishonored by sin in the highest degree, must either be honored by its execution on the criminal, or the lawgiver must in some other way bear testimony in favor of the law before he can justly dispense with the execution of its penalty. The law is not to be repealed. The law must not be dishonored. It is the law of God's nature, the unalterable law of His government, the eternal law of heaven, and the law for the government of moral agents in all worlds and in all time and to all eternity. Sinners have borne their most emphatic testimony against it by pouring contempt upon it in utterly refusing to obey it. Sin must not be treated lightly. This law must be honored. God may pour a flash of glory over it by executing its penalty upon the whole human race that has despised it. This would be the solemn testimony of God to sustain its authority and vindicate its claims. If our advocate appears before God to ask for the remission of sin and for the penalty of this law to be set aside and not executed, the question immediately arises, but how will the dishonor of this law be avoided? What will compensate for the careless and blasphemous contempt with which this law has been treated? How will sin be forgiven without apparently making light of it? It is plain that sin has placed the whole question in such a light that God's testimony must in some way be produced in a most emphatic manner against sin and to sustain the authority of this dishonored law. It is necessary for the advocate of sinners to provide himself with a plea that will meet this difficulty. He must meet this necessity if he wants to secure the setting aside of the penalty. He must be able to provide an adequate substitution for its execution. He must be able to do that which will as effectively bear testimony in favor of the law and against sin as the execution of the law upon the criminal would do. In other words, he must be able to meet the demands of public justice. 6. 
he must be willing to volunteer a willing and free service. He cannot be called upon in justice to volunteer a service or to suffer for the sake of sinners. He may volunteer his service, and it may be accepted. But if he does volunteer his service, he must be able and willing to endure whatever pain or sacrifice is necessary to meet the case. If the law must be honored by obedience, if without the shedding of blood there is no remission, Hebrews 9.22, if an emphatic governmental testimony must be borne against sin and in honor of the law, and if he must become the representative of sinners, offering himself before the whole universe as a propitiation for sin, then he must be willing to meet the case and make the sacrifice. 7. He must have a good plea. In other words, when he appears before the mercy seat, he must be able to present such considerations as will actually meet the necessities of the case and render it safe, proper, honorable, and glorious in God to forgive. Roman numeral 6. I now come to inquire what his plea in behalf of sinners is. It should be remembered that the appeal is not to justice. Since the fall of man, God has plainly suspended the execution of strict justice upon the human race. To us, as a matter of fact, He has sat upon a throne of mercy. Mercy, and not justice, has been the rule of His administration since people have been involved in sin. This is a simple fact. People do sin, and they are not cut off immediately and sent to hell. The execution of justice is suspended, and God is represented as seated upon a throne of grace or upon a mercy seat. It is here at a mercy seat that Christ executes the office of advocate for sinners. 2. Christ's plea for sinners cannot be that they are not guilty. They are guilty and condemned. No question can be raised in respect to their guilt and their deserving of punishment. Such questions are settled. It has often appeared strange to me that people overlook the fact that they are condemned already and that no question respecting their guilt or their deserving punishment can ever be raised. 3. Christ, as our Advocate, cannot and need not plead a justification. A plea of justification admits the fact charged, but asserts that under the circumstances the accused had a right to do as he did. Christ can never make this plea. This is entirely out of place the case having been already tried and the sentence given. 4. He may not plead what will reflect in any way upon the law. He cannot plead that the law was too strict in its precept or too severe in its penalty, for in that case 
he would not really plead for mercy, but for justice. He would plead in that case that no injustice could be done to the criminal. For if he implies that the law is not just, then the sinner does not deserve the punishment. Therefore, it would be unjust to punish him, and his plea would amount to this, that the sinner should not be punished because he does not deserve it. If this plea would be allowed to prevail, it would be a public acknowledgment on the part of God that his law was unjust, and this can never be. 5. Christ, as our Advocate, may not plead anything that will reflect upon the administration of the lawgiver. If he would plead that people had been harshly treated by the lawgiver, either in their creation by his providential arrangements or by allowing them to be so tempted, or if in any way he brings forward a plea that reflects upon the lawgiver in creation or in the administration of his government, the lawgiver cannot listen to his plea and forgive the sinner without condemning himself. In that case, instead of insisting that the sinner should repent, the lawgiver would be essentially called upon himself to repent. 6. He may not plead any excuse whatsoever for the sinner in reduction of his crime or in justification of his conduct. For if he does, and the lawgiver would forgive an answer to such a plea, he would confess that he had been wrong and that the sinner did not deserve the sentence that had been pronounced against him. He must not plead that the sinner does not deserve the damnation of hell, for if he would urge this plea, it would virtually accuse the justice of God and would be equivalent to begging that the sinner might not be sent unjustly to hell. This would not be a proper plea for mercy, but rather would be an issue with justice. It would be asking that the sinner might not be sent to hell, not because of the mercy of God, but because the justice of God forbids it. This will never be. 7. He cannot plead as our advocate that he has paid our debt in such a sense that he can demand our release on the ground of justice. He has not paid our debt in such a case that we do not still owe it. He has not atoned for our sins in such a sense that we would not still be justly punished for them. Indeed, such a thing is impossible and absurd. One being cannot suffer for another in such a sense as to remove the sin of that other. He may suffer for another's sin in such a sense that it will be safe to forgive the sinner for whom the suffering has been endured, but the suffering of the substitute can never in the slightest degree diminish the fundamental sin of the criminal. Our advocate may urge that he has borne such suffering for us to honor the law that we had dishonored and that now it is safe to extend mercy to us. But he can never demand our release on the ground that we do not deserve to be punished. 
the fact of our fundamental guilt remains and must forever remain. Our forgiveness is just as much an act of sovereign mercy as if Christ had never died for us. 8. Christ may plead his sin offering to confirm the law, as fulfilling a condition upon which we may be forgiven. However, this offering is not to be regarded as the ground upon which justice demands our forgiveness. Our advocate does not appeal to this offering as a payment in such a sense that now in justice he can demand that we should be set free. No. As I said before, it is simply the fulfilling of a condition upon which it is safe for the mercy of God to stop and set aside the execution of the law in the case of the repentant sinner. Some theologians appear to me to have been unable to see this distinction. They insist that the atonement of Christ is the ground of our forgiveness. They seem to assume that he literally bore the penalty for us in such a sense that Christ now no longer appeals to mercy but demands justice for us. To be consistent, they must maintain that Christ did not plead at a mercy seat for us, but having paid our debt, he appears before a throne of justice and demands our release. I cannot accept this view. I insist that his offering could not touch the question of our basic deserving of damnation. His appeal is to the infinite mercy of God and to his loving disposition to pardon. He points to his atonement not as demanding our release, but as fulfilling a condition upon which our release is honorable to God. He may plead his obedience to the law and the shedding of his blood as a substitute for the execution of the law upon us. Basically, he may plead the entirety of his work as God-man and mediator. Therefore, he may give us the full benefit of what he has done, to sustain the authority of law and to vindicate the character of the lawgiver as fulfilling conditions that have made it possible for God to be just and still justify the repentant sinner. 9. The plea is directed to the merciful disposition of God. He may point to the promise made to him in Isaiah 52:13 to 53:2. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, as many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men so shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, 
there is no beauty that we should desire him. 10. He may plead also that he becomes our surety, that he advocates for us, and that he is our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30 He can point to his official capacity, his infinite fullness, willingness, and ability to restore us to obedience and to prepare us for the service, the activities, and enjoyments of heaven. It is said that he has made the surety of a better covenant than the legal one, Hebrews 7.22, and a covenant founded upon better promises, Hebrews 8.6. 11. He may urge as a reason for our pardon the great pleasure it will give to God to set aside the execution of the law. Mercy rejoiceth against judgment, James 2.13. Judgment is his strange work, but he delighteth in mercy, Micah 7.18. It is said of Queen Victoria that when her prime minister presented a pardon and asked her if she would sign a pardon in the case of some individual who was sentenced to death, she seized the pen and said, Yes, with all my heart. Do you think that such an appeal could be made to a woman's heart without its leaping for joy to be placed in a position in which it could save the life of a fellow human being? It is said that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Luke 15.10 And do you not think that it gives God the sincerest joy to be able to forgive the miserable sinner and save him from the doom of hell? He has no pleasure in our death. Ezekiel 33.11 it is a grief to him to be bound to execute his law on sinners, and no doubt it gives him infinitely higher pleasure to forgive us than it does to be forgiven. He knows very well what the unutterable horrors of hell and damnation are. He knows the sinner cannot bear it. He says, can your heart endure, and can your hands be strong in the day that I will deal with you? And what will you do when I punish you? Ezekiel 22.14 Our advocate knows that to punish the sinner is that in which God has no delight, that he will forgive and sign the pardon with all his heart. Do you think that such an appeal to the heart of God, to His merciful disposition, will be of no use? It is said of Christ, our Advocate, that for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. Hebrews 12.2 So great was the love of our Advocate for us, that he regarded it a pleasure and a joy so great to save us from hell, that he counted the shame and agony of the cross as a mere trifle. He despised them. 
This, then, is a disclosure of the heart of our Advocate. How certainly he may assume that it will give God the sincerest joy, eternal joy, to be able to honorably seal to us a pardon. 12. He may urge the glory that will be given to the Son of God for that part he has taken in this work. Will it not be eternally honorable in the Son to have advocated the cause of sinners, to have undertaken at such great expense to himself a cause so desperate, and to have carried it through at the expense of such agony and blood? Will not the universe of creatures forever wonder and adore as they see this Advocate surrounded with the innumerable multitude of souls for whom his advocacy has prevailed? 13. Our Advocate may plead the gratitude of the redeemed and the profound thanks and praise of all good beings. Do you not think that the whole family of virtuous beings will forever feel indebted for the intervention of Christ as our Advocate, and for the mercy, forbearance, and love that has saved us? Remarks 1. You see what it is to become a Christian. It is to engage Christ as your Advocate by committing your cause entirely to Him. You cannot be saved by your works, by your sufferings, or by your prayers. You cannot be saved in any way except by the intervention of this Advocate. He ever lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 He offers to take up your cause. To be a Christian is to at once surrender your whole cause, your whole life and being to Him as your Advocate. 2. He is an Advocate that loses no causes. Every cause committed to Him and continued in His hands is infallibly gained. His advocacy is all prevalent. God has appointed Him as an Advocate and wherever he appears in behalf of any sinner who has committed his cause to him, one word of his is sure to prevail. 3. Therefore, you see the safety of believers. Christ is always at his post, always ready to attend to all the concerns of those who have made him their advocate. He is able also to save unto the uttermost all that come unto God by Him, Hebrews 7.25, and abiding in Him, you are forever safe. 4. You see the position of unbelievers. You have no advocate. God has appointed an advocate, but you reject Him. You hope to get along without Him. Maybe some of you think you will be punished for your sins and do not ask forgiveness. Others of you may think you will approach in your own name and that you will plead your own cause without any atonement or without any advocate. But 
God will not allow it. He has appointed an advocate to act in your behalf. And unless you approach through him, God will not hear you. If you are out of Christ, he is to you a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. When the judgment will begin and you appear in your own name, you will certainly appear unsanctified and unsaved. You will not be able to lift up your head. You will be ashamed to look in the face of the Advocate, who will then sit both as judge and advocate. 5. I ask, have you engaged him? Have you, by your own consent, made him your advocate? It is not enough that God would have appointed him to act in this way. He cannot act for you in this way unless you individually commit yourself and your case to his advocacy. This is done, as I have said, by entrusting or committing the whole question of your salvation to Him. 6. Do any of you say that you are unable to engage Him? Remember that the fee that He requires of you is your heart. You have a heart. It is not money that He seeks, but your heart. The poor, then, may employ him as well as the rich. The children who do not have a penny of their own can engage him as their advocate, just as well as their rich parents. All may employ him, for all have hearts. 7. He offers his services freely to all, requiring nothing of them but confidence, gratitude, love, and obedience. The poor and the rich alike must give this to him, and this they all are able to give. 8. Can any of you do without him? Have you ever considered how it will be with you? The question now comes down to this. Will you consent to give up your sins and trust your souls to the advocacy of Christ? Will you give Him the fee that He asks, your heart, your trust, your grateful love, and your obedience? Will He be your advocate or will He not? Suppose He stood before you and in His hand He held the book of life. Then, with a pen dipped in the very light of heaven, he would ask, Who of you will now consent to make me your advocate? Suppose he would ask of you, sinner, Can I be of any service to you? Can I do anything for you, dying sinner? Can I support and help you in any way? Can I speak a good word for you? Can I interpose my blood, my death, my life, and my advocacy to save you from the depths of hell? Will you consent? 
May I write down your name in the book of life? Will it today be told in heaven that you are saved? May I report that you have committed your cause to me, and thus give joy in heaven? Or will you reject me, stand upon your own defense, and attempt to carry your case through at the solemn judgment? Sinner, I warn you, in the name of Christ, do not tell him no. Consent here and now, and let it be written in heaven. 9. Have any of you made his advocacy certain by committing all to him? If you have, he has attended to your cause because he has secured your pardon. You have the evidence in your peace of mind. Has he attended to your cause? Do you have the inward sense of reconciliation, the inward witness that you believe that you are forgiven, that you are accepted, that Christ has taken up your cause? that he has already prevailed and secured pardon for you? Has he given in your own soul the peace of God that passes understanding to rule in your heart? Philippians 4.7 It is a remarkable fact in Christian experience that whenever we really commit our cause to Jesus, he secures our pardon without delay and in the inward peace that follows, he gives us the assurance of our acceptance that he has interposed his blood, that his blood is accepted for us, that his advocacy has prevailed, and that we are saved. Do not stop short of this, for if your peace with God is truly made, if you are in fact forgiven, then the sting of remorse is gone. There is no longer any grating or any irritation between your spirit and the Spirit of God. The sense of condemnation and remorse has given place to the Spirit of Gospel liberty, peace, and love. The stony heart is gone. The heart of flesh has taken its place. Ezekiel 11.19 The dry sensation is melted and peace flows like a river. Do you have this? Is this a matter of realization with you? If so, then leave your cause by a continual commitment of it to the advocacy of Christ. Abide in Him, and let Him abide in you and you will be as safe as the surroundings of the Almighty Arms can make you.